What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Terror Table, a horror movie podcast presented by the Saskatchewan Podcast Network, who's currently sponsored by Connexus Credit Union. I'm Mitch, and I'll be joined shortly by my co-hosts, Kyle and Boozy, and this week's very special guest, Greg Thomas. Greg is a record producer and owner of Silver Bullet Studios out of Burlington, Connecticut. He is one of the guitarists in the hardcore supergroup End, which features members of Counterparts, Fit for an Autopsy, Reign Supreme, and Misery Signals. Greg formerly performed in bands such as The Risk Taken, With Honor, Shy Halud, and Misery Signals. This episode was fucking unreal. All three of us at the Terror Table have been huge fans of Greg's musical projects, both past and present, and it just made him a hundred times cooler knowing that he is also a diehard horror fan. Greg isn't just a casual horror fan either. Horror has played a massive role in Greg's upbringing, and this episode is jam-packed with the genre love that you all come to the Terror Table for. We spent the first portion of this conversation talking about Greg's different musical projects, the formation of his band End, his time playing with the legendary metalcore group Misery Signals, and the legacy surrounding his recording studio, Silver Bullet Studios. Greg also spent his teenage years working at the infamous Yankee Peddler Inn in Connecticut. This is the hotel that filmmaker Ty West based his 2011 film The Innkeepers off of. The film was actually filmed in the exact hotel that Greg had worked at. We were lucky enough to have Greg share an absolutely bizarre story that took place while he was working at the Yankee Peddler Inn. The conversation is capped off with a discussion on Greg's top five lesser discussed black and white horror films. He put a lot of thought into his picks and we couldn't be happier with how this entire discussion turned out. So if you haven't yet, be sure to follow Greg on Instagram at Black Freighter. And it should go without saying that any fans of punk, metal, or hardcore music should be keeping an eye on what End is up to. You can find them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And their new song, Fear For Me Now, is now available on Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you find your music. End will be releasing their debut full-length album on June 5th titled Splinters From An Ever-Changing Face. Last but not least, give Silver Bullet Studios a follow on all social media platforms. And if you haven't, check out their website, because that's where you can see a bunch of really cool photos of all the awesome stuff that Greg has in his studio that all the bands get to perform next to. While you're at it, give us a follow on all popular social media platforms. You can find us at The Terror Table. We will be back next week to continue the back half of our Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective, in which we will be tackling both The Dream Child and Freddy's Dead. We're also going to be bringing our friend Tyler Baptist from Videonomicon and Soulmates along for the ride. But until then, brace yourself for the absolute beefiest and meanest riff that I'm about to hit your eardrums with. And then enjoy this conversation with Greg Thomas of End. back we're back at the terror table and we're welcoming gregory james thomas welcome to the show greg how's it going thanks man uh yeah i'm doing pretty well how are you guys doing awesome as good as i can speak for myself as good as i can be during uh these quarantine times how about you guys how are you guys doing like hit him with his middle name too (laughs) well yeah that's what he he go he goes as that on his instagram and everything so i should i can we call you greg yeah, yeah, just call me Greg for sure. I think I, I just go for that on the Instagram just because uh, it's a pretty common last name and there's, you know, thousands and thousands of Greg Thomases, even other producers and engineers with the same oh, wow. names. So it gets tricky sometimes. 
Crazy. Well, that makes sense. Well, we're crazy excited to have you here today. Uh, I can speak for all three of us in saying that we're huge fans of your musical endeavors, past and present. And uh, it, we, I know we've been watching you on Instagram over the years, as creepy as that sounds. It's been really cool seeing you share your horror movie love. And I know when Boozy and I started this show three years ago, you were one of the first names that came up and people that we wanted to talk to. Uh, but we wanted to make sure we were we were ready for you and we could give you a proper episode. So it's exciting that that day has finally come and you're willing to talk to us for a little bit. Yeah, man, I, I really appreciate that. That's, you know, of course, like, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. It's super Thanks cool. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, this is very exciting. This is awesome. Yeah, like I said, like, we're going to try not fanboy too hard, but like... We all grew up off of like you're you're you were a part of uh, my favorite Shy Halud album, Misanthropy Pure, and uh, like you were in Misery Signals. In your new band, End is just an absolutely absolute unit of sound. Uh, we're just obsessed with End right now, and it just makes it so much cooler that you're a hardcore horror fan. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah, hell yeah. So let's get talking about horror movies, though. But uh, first off, I want to we want to congratulate you on the release of two new songs today that you were involved with. So and released a new song called Fear For Me Now, which is an absolute banger. Uh, like we've been jamming that all day. And then you also released uh, you mixed. So you were the producer or what? How, what was your involvement in the new you Misery recorded Signal song? and mixed it, wasn't it? So, yeah, for the new Misery Signals <clears throat> record, I didn't record all of it. Um but I did record the vocals, some of the guitar textures and post-production stuff. And, and I mixed the record as well with uh, Chris Teddy, who runs Silver Bullet Studios with me. And I came, I came into that. That was like a, they were working on that record and they had assembled a really good team of people to work on that album. Um, they had uh, Matt Bayless do the drum recording. He's uh, the producer for Mastodon. Yeah. Um, they had this guy, Tim Creviston, who's, uh, does rain city recording, um, do like guitars and stuff. He's fantastic. And then, um, actually Devin Townsend did some of the vocal recording oh, wow. as well, oh. not on the single that just came out, but some of the other like critical songs on the record. So it was a really cool team of people that they'd put together. And I was, uh, honored to try to pull it all together and, do the mix so that's wicked definitely, definitely definitely a cool experience to still be involved with those guys you know I, I love those guys i was a fan of the band before i played with them and uh i still am so having an involvement with them is is uh, a very cool thing that's awesome and yeah like we're obviously i'm pretty sure we're going to be mentioning misery signals a couple times in the next at least 10 or 15 minutes here as we talk to you about music and then we're going to get to talking about horror movies and then more specifically we're going to cap this episode off talking about your top five favorite lesser discussed black and white horror films uh which is really awesome because that's something that isn't overly represented on our show but it is something that we've grown very passionate about over the last couple of weeks especially awesome. i know that uh, the three of us we it wasn't a black and white movie. Well, we did we did a throwback series of originals and remakes, and we talked about House of Wax and then the House of Wax remake, and then we talked about Invasion of the Body Snatchers and yep. Body Snatchers, and those they really really connected with us. So it's really exciting that you chose to talk about black and white movies today. Uh, so we hope everyone listening has a pen and paper out, or at least has their phone out, and they can jot down the movies that you pick because we're looking forward to checking them out. Great, thanks. Awesome. 
Uh, so let's get started with uh, some music questions. So you've been a part, like I said before, you've been a part of some monumental bands in the punk, hardcore, metalcore scene uh, that the three of us have all grown up on. So that includes The Risk Taken, Shy Halud, Misery Signals, and now your current band, who potentially dishes out the most soul-crushing riffs out there right now, and you guys are called End. Uh, so it's featuring members of Misery Signals, Counterparts, Fit for an Autopsy, Reign Supreme, and now you guys recently picked up the drummer of Dillinger Escape Plan, is that correct? Yep, which uh, Billy Reimer, which is like uh, when Will had called me and said that, hey, uh, Billy's interested in joining. And I myself was freaking out about that because I, I love Dillinger Escape Plan. And that's like a band of just top tier musicians. And he is such a phenomenal drummer. So, um, you know, playing music with him has definitely been cool. In no disrespect to Andrew, who was our first drummer uh, who played in Structures. He's yeah. a fantastic drummer, too. I, we've been very lucky to have two great drummers in the band. Totally. Well, you guys are just stacked to the brim full of talent. So uh, what, uh, what we're curious about, I'm sure you've answered this question before, but for our listeners, how did, how did End come to be? How did this band come to formation? I think the, the first step towards uh, the band coming together and, and my involvement in the band was meeting Will Putney in 2013 when he did pre-production for the Misery Signals album Absent Light. So even though um, me and the other guitarist, Ryan, were producing that Misery Singles record, we wanted to go somewhere and have an outside, fresh perspective, kind of weigh in on the songs before we started tracking it. And we reached out to Will Putney, who was like still getting himself established at that point, and I never met him. And we hit it off right away. We, As soon as we like started talking any music um, at all, it was like, oh, man, you like turmoil and you like his heroes gone and you like this we just had like a lot of bands in common and we kind of talked it was like a week-long thing and we kind of talked and we're like yeah we should do a band together someday and at that point i had been talking to um uh, my friends andy and chris who went on to do the band sect together yeah. Um, but oh, yeah. we, we were actually talking about maybe doing that together, me, Andy and Chris, because we had just done a tour together and we're like, we should do some vicious, heavy band. And it worked out where I was getting too busy, you know, at least on my end, I was starting to get too busy with Misery Signals doing Absent Light and the tour stuff for that. So they kind of went and started had sect going. But I had talked to Will about that and we were kind of like, yeah, that's like a cool thing, like we should play music together that's aggressive and, and whatnot too. So when my involvement with sex didn't work out, you know, I, I kind of had in the back of my mind that I would do something with Will, but you know, there's, when you're a musician, there's always talk about like, Hey, we should do something together. We should do something together. It doesn't always happen. But a few years after that, kind of out of the blue, Will hit me up and he's, and he was just kind of like, all right, I figured it out. We're doing this heavy band. And we're going to have Brendan from Counterpart sing for it. And uh, I, I, I didn't really know Brendan at the time. And I was like, all right, can this guy... I was like, Will, can he do like something as heavy and intense as what we want to do? Because like, you know, Counterparts is a great <coughs> band, but Counterparts isn't as uh, aggressive, you know, destructive as uh, End is. So I was like, can he do that kind of voice? And Will was just like, absolutely. He's like, I got the lineup. I, I think it's going to be great. Let's, let's do it. So him and I started writing songs and I, I met the rest of the guys in the studio when we were getting ready to do that first EP. 
So I didn't know them before then, but it was kind of like Will curated the band and, and put together the thing and um, just really, you know, had a cool vision for it based on our talks and stuff like that. And he really gave me like a lot of freedom writing wise too. He he was just kind of like, dude, like, you know what we're, we're all into and like, just go for it and start writing some songs. And so him and I wrote songs and I remember we kind of brought them in together, you know, uh, the first time we had gotten together, I had uh, Usurper written and he had uh, Love Let Me Die written, which is two of the, the first songs we put out from that record. And just so kind of good. right from the start. <laughs> yeah, those songs are, they, oh God, I remember the first time me and Boozy heard those uh, those tracks. I think we were hanging out and we're like, holy shit. Because uh, we also, we're big fans of Counterparts as well. And like you said, you wouldn't expect uh, you wouldn't expect Brennan to be able to get such a like guttural sound from his stomach. Well, it like he even sound like him a lot of the time. He's so beefy on end songs, and yeah. he yeah he fits in so well. But he's also like he's so good in Counterparts, which is like a melodic more of a melodic hardcore type band and more emotional and everything. But end is just aggressive. Oh, it's awesome. He's That's a wicked. real talent. What's crazy about Brennan is that. End is his second band ever. Counterparts is his first band. So like most wow. people, when, when you're when you're growing up and like learning, you know, to do bands and stuff, you have a couple stumbling block bands when you're in like high school or something like that. Like, you know, just oh, I used to be in this metal band X, you know, whatever X, you know. And uh with him, his first band ever was Counterparts, like as a yeah. kid. And then his <laughs> second band was End. So it's the first time anybody's heard him do anything other than that. Um, Man, I rem- he's great. Yeah, I remember that ba- that band just blew up so quick because, uh, like, I grew up playing playing in metal and hardcore bands as well, and um, like your all of your bands were huge inspirations for us. But like, we played a show, we played a show the with Counterparts the day that they were signed to Victor. I think it was a Victory show in Saskatoon. It was like the day that they announced that they were signed on a major record label and they were touring with Architects or something. It was just crazy seeing them blow up that way. That's awesome. And that show probably, I would guess, had 50, 100 kids or something there. Oh, dude, it was nuts. And then (laughs) then you just see it go off the rails with what they're doing now. Yeah. I mean, they Counterparts is one of the hardest working bands in the scene. So, you know, they they deserve the uh, recognition that they get because that band gets out there and they grind and they, they just play so many shows and are so constantly active that uh, I have nothing but respect for those guys. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I was just kind of curious. I was going back and listening to some of the old podcasts you've done. Um, this is a couple of years now ago when you did the brutally speaking podcast. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned about, you did quite a bit, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you did quite a bit of the writing for Absent Light. Yeah, uh, yeah, musically and lyrically. Um, okay. At that time period. Yeah, that was, uh, that. me and Ryan did a lot of that together. Um, you know, that, that, was a, that was a fully interesting experience because I, I was, a, I, like I said, I was a fan of Misery Signals uh, before joining them. You know, I had toured with them um i i did one of their first tours actually when jesse you know when they had just started the band before Stu was even in the band um i i did a tour with them when i was playing in this band with honor um we did some dates with misery signals and every time i die in like 2002 maybe 2003 
Those and I had met the guys. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'd met the guys then and um, had kind of stayed in touch with them ever since. And would keep, I'd keep running into them at uh, different points in time, you know, f- playing in different bands. And, and I actually remember, so their first guitarist, before Stu. So if you guys ever heard, Misery Singles has like a self-titled EP CD that they had come out before Malice. And oh, that, yeah. has a diff- that has a different guitarist on it. It has uh, this guitarist, Jeff, um, who's from Connecticut in the, in the States where I'm from. And, uh, you know, when he left the band, I considered trying to reach out to the guys and be like, hey, man, I'll, I'll join Misery Signals. I'll, I'll move out to the Midwest and do this. This is back in 2003. <laughs> and uh, I'd considered doing that, but ultimately ended up uh, kind of staying at home and, and they got Stu and they went and did so, you know, so many great records with him um, that it was so funny because those that the seed of that had been planted way back then so that when Stu eventually left, uh, I, I had gotten the call from Ryan and was like, yeah, I think it would still be a good fit. Maybe we should do this and it was, you <laughs> know, 10 years later or something like that. And so I was lucky enough to join them. That's right. amazing. They dusted off uh, your business card and gave you a call. We yeah, should also it, we should also point out that we like we live in Saskatchewan, which is where Carl Schubach is from. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's about an hour from where we live. Yeah. Big. So Misery Signals is a very big name around here. Absolutely. Yeah. It's always been like just synonymous with the province here. Like Misery Signals being one of like the biggest bands for sure. I remember. So I I remember touring. Before I was in Misery Signals, when I was still playing in Shilud, we did a tour that was Shilud, Misery Signals, Means, um, Human Abstract, a couple other things. And oh, I remember, it was like, oh my God, I was there. It, was, it was a yeah. five week, I think it was like a four or five week tour of Canada only, which is a pretty wild thing that doesn't happen too often, like to do five weeks in just canada and yeah. i and, and all the shows were cool on that misery singles was the headliner of that and all the shows are cool and i remember thinking like these guys really invested into playing canada and being proud of like their members coming from there and like they were playing places that i think under normal circumstances we, we wouldn't necessarily i would never get the chance to really do that no bigger tour necessarily go to because like we were really finding like small towns out there and stuff and they had a draw and a fan base there and i and i realized on that tour it's like 2007 or 2008 um i realized that they had just like put a lot of time into playing canada and and i and i understood why because all those shows are cool and then when i played in the band all the canadian shows were always great so it, it's cool to hear that like you were saying like an hour away from where carl's from there's some kind of uh i don't know that you guys know that and right and it's like a cool thing for the scene out there yeah yeah no carl's pretty big out here for he has his own like little recording studio and a lot of uh bands from our province go and record through him as well so he's still doing music stuff for the scene here i guess that's Um, that's awesome i think carl i think carl is so talented i i think he is such a gifted like because he's a, actually an incredible guitarist and yeah. uh you know i kind of wish uh things with between him and i were maybe a little uh smoother than they are but i i've always had respect for carl i think he's like an amazing singer 
and an amazing guitarist. And I think people often get stuck in the like, you know, Jesse versus Carl when they're talking about the band. And and I, to me, as like somebody that's a fan of, uh, as an outsider fan of records of both those guys, they're just both incredible singers. And like, I think Miser Singles absolutely lucked out with having Carl as a replacement. And uh, again, lucked out by being able to have the original singer come back. I think it's just a really, both are super talented. So, totally. Um, totally. I was just going to ask with uh, you recording some of the stuff with Mr. Signals now, did you have a hand in writing at all or were you just strictly there since you were so much involved with Absent Light? So I, I was mostly, uh, mostly came in after the songs were written. Um, okay. So there, there's one song on the record which is the second track on the record it's called sunlifter which was a song that we had written and recorded for absent light that didn't make it on absent light not because it was like a b-side we just didn't finish writing the lyrics and the guitar parts and we thought absent light was like long enough so we just kind of like put it out as it was and then released that song sunlifter on like a limited seven inch but that song okay. is on this record so they re-recorded it on this record so i i wrote that with the band but um the other stuff yeah they had just written with the original lineup and then i got to kind of come in i i added some layers some like little guitar leads and production stuff when i was mixing they kind of gave me freedom to you know layer it uh a little bit which is a thing that i went kind of honestly wild with with absent light there's a lot of layers on that record um so they kind of let me do some of that. So I got to write some some parts that ended up in there. But for the most part, it was uh, it was them. And they had been working on it ever since the Malice X tour. So it's been like five years or something, uh, six years since they had started writing this this album, pretty much. Okay, that's awesome. That's good to hear. Kind of transitioning into horror a little bit, but staying on music at the same time. I know I'm nowhere, I'm nowhere near the first person to draw this comparison between punk metal and hardcore music to horror movies, but I know the two types of art forms have gone hand in hand in raising me. I was wondering what your take on the correlation between the mu this type of music and horror is. I think that there is absolutely a correlation there. And, and um, I also grew up with both, you know, fully being steeped in both. And, and I think why there's the correlation is because hardcore punk thrives on the DIY low budget ethic and being able to get out there and like, okay, I only got $10 in my pocket, but I guess I'm going to travel the country right now, you know, and, and really making it work with very little And horror is the exact same thing. So many of the great horror movies are low budget shoestring films that are just kind of this DIY. Like I'm going to grab a camera and a couple <laughs> friends and we're going to go out and try to make something. And I, so I think in spirit, it's, it's the exact same approach to making it. And then also um, in spirit, they're both kind of just counterculture uh, forms of art in terms of establishing the quote unquote, like, you know, mainstream or, or, you know, standard cultural thing, because both horror and hardcore punk and, and metal are extreme for their art form. You know, they're considered extreme for their art form. They're, they're challenging, they're visceral. So the similarities are like, they're absolutely connected. I, I think if, if you're a fan of the kind of counterculture element of either, you'll find something to appreciate in the other. And uh, totally. I, I think that that's true. And I, I think you also, you know, the kind of renaissance of uh, the late 70s and 80s 
which horror became such an independent <clears throat> thing and h- hardcore punk cr- was created where they're both born out of a similar situation, even though horror has been around forever. But what a lot of the stuff that we probably like and what we grew up with is probably late seventies, early eighties. A lot of the slasher stuff that was coming out at the same time as metal thrash metal and things like that. So I feel like they were both born of the same social circumstances as well. Totally. And yeah, like one thing for me that I've noticed is like with hardcore and punk specifically, it's all about the message behind the behind the lyrics. That's what that's what really drives the is the driving force between between behind hardcore and punk is the message behind the lyrics and everything. And I think that that's something that can be said about horror movie, a lot of horror movies as well. And then the other thing is that metal really relies on atmosphere, which is another thing that horror movies heavily rely on. So I think there's so many different correlations and it's really cool to hear your take on it because totally, and, totally. and it's yeah, that's oh, sorry, awesome. I was just, just, just going to say, yeah, with with the metal stuff like atmosphere and the extreme imagery, metal also thrives on the extreme imagery that all the old metal album covers from like Slayer and things like that. That's to provide you with the same reaction of like, oh, is this taboo? Is this OK to have that you would have had if you. You know, you could have been some kid in like the mid '80s and gotten like a Evil Dead VHS tape and a cop and a cassette tape of Rain and Blood, and it probably gave you the same feeling. Like, am I supposed to have this or not? Totally. So. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of seems like the two borrow from each other in the visuals too over time. I mean, you see metal and hardcore visuals taking from horror films. You see horror films taking from metal and hardcore kind of aesthetics as well. I, I love yeah. how that kind of, you know, that blood runs deep. But Well, even your guys' most recent music video. Oh, sure, for, yeah, absolutely. For Pariah. Yeah, our, our, the director, Eric, Eric Richter, he, um, he's a huge horror fan himself. And so when we were kind of, Will came up with the idea for that. But when we sat down to kind of go over some of the specific visuals, you know, we, we, um, it was funny. We were talking and I was like, yeah, I, I grew up with this stuff. I started referencing things like, oh, maybe we should do something like this, you know, from like uh, Evil Dead or something like that. There's all sorts of weird uh, things throughout that as far reaching as, uh, you know, the branches behind the main character at one point in the music video are put together in a triangle that's kind of like the void or neon demon or something like that and yeah right yeah there, there's all these kind of like little specific nods where we communicated through horror films to come up with the visuals and we have another video that's coming together now i you know i should hopefully fingers crossed be done and uh come out right when the record's coming out that we again referenced uh different horror films and it, you know, it was like, okay, what should we do? And I'm like, oh, what about this and this? And it's the same director again, you know, and, and it's just a very easy language for us to communicate to one another with. That's cool. Are the, Just a curious question. Are the rest of the members of your band in End, are they all fans of horror as well? Because like, as for the one out of the ones that I know of personally, just from following them and everything and keeping up with the, their their personal endeavors is I know Brandon is uh, Brandon is a huge fan of Twin Peaks, but other than that, I don't know about anything else. I uh, truth be told, I haven't really talked to them um, much about it. I I think that they all probably enjoy certain films, but I don't think any of them are like real diehard horror fans. I do think not to the level of like what you, what, how your place looks, Hey, not yeah, Not to the same (laughs) level. And it's not something that even comes up too often. I do know that will, 
Will really seeks out some, like when it comes to music video stuff, he's like an encyclopedia for some really insane, dark videos that I've never seen of artists I've never heard. Where he's like, yeah, this, it, we should reference this one in wild video from this Norwegian black metal band from some era. And I'm like, oh shit. So Will's like incredibly tapped into the music side of it. And he always gravitates towards the more darker, aggressive things. So I guess he likes horror through that. But when it comes to the films, um, it's not something that I've talked to him too much about. And this is also, this is probably born from us not spending that much time together because we, everybody's so busy in the band that we only get the chance to get together every now and then. And it's like, all right, one rehearsal and then five shows and then okay see you guys in like six months you know (laughs) that's not always such a bad thing though if you think about it because it's kind of like anyone who's been in a band you know it's kind of like you have five different girlfriends all at the same time and you can butt heads pretty easily totally and i and i I will say that um of all the bands that i've been in end is probably the one where everybody just gets along the easiest because of that like it's just right it's a really cool thing where everybody kind of uh you know we don't see each other too often so when we see each other it's it's really exciting and really something special so so we don't take it for granted you know we we really go into it with a kind of positive attitude and then on top of it um it's a weird thing where we all kind of mutually respect each other and where we have come from so you know we kind of like let each other do our things you know like it, it with, with Brendan, it's like, all oh, right, I can't wait to hear what your vocals are. We don't have to, like, pick it apart or anything like that. I just know he's going to do something cool. And when Billy comes up with a drum fill, I know it's going to be something cool, you know. So uh, we have, like, a mutual respect for each other that makes it a, a really fun band to be a part of, honestly. Well, those are the joys of the modern recording process. That's awesome. I think uh, I think it's a great thing to share together in that way. Um, I just wanted to mention, like, it's pretty obvious that your love for horror runs deep and it's pretty apparent that you aren't a casual fan i mean your recording studio name is silver bullet studios and it's filled with horror posters and props all around it your cat's name is even wolfman you're covered in horror tattoos i guess i'm just kind of curious and i think all of us are probably a little itching to understand kind of where your love for horror all began and kind of maybe the beginnings of you know your interest in the you know this genre I think a lot of my interest in the genre uh, admittedly came from my dad, who always had um, kind of fringe taste in in film. Like, and and just talking to him about stuff when I was growing up, he, he so my dad is very influential on me, and we didn't always have a good relationship. It's funny because when I was growing up, we had a it was a problematic home at, at times, you know, as I think a lot of families, you know, face a lot of things families face, but my dad was a musician. Uh, he's a, a pianist that would play and kind of tour in uh, different jazz ensembles and things like that. So I grew up with my dad doing recording and playing music. And he also always gravitated towards horror films. He was always watching things like Terminator, Aliens, uh, Rosemary's Baby, Exorcist, stuff like that. Those are all his favorite films. Um, which is really interesting and, and unique. Not a lot of people get to have a, a parent that is into something like that. And so I just kind of grew up around the music and the imagery. And it's, it's funny, when I was young, I, I hated the music. Music, I was like, 
music sucks. I want to do anything other than music. I remember thinking that when I was a kid. But the <laughs> wow. horror stuff I always liked. The horror stuff I always thought was cool. Because it, it, you know, I, I think the main thing with that was that he would watch these things. And for a little bit, he would try to shield me away from it. But I would, you know, sneak into the room. He'd sneak into the living room at night. Or he'd be out. A, a common thing was he'd be out playing a gig or, or doing some small tour and there'd be some kind of like babysitter or something watching me. And I would just like totally take advantage of that and be like, Oh yeah, he, he always watches HBO. This is totally cool <laughs> for me to like see, you know, total recall or something right now. That's fine. Three uh, boobs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, um, so a lot of, a lot of it comes from my father and, and the fact that he liked that stuff. Uh, and I mean, you know, so many kids have a similar experience where that where they're when they're growing up, and and as a kid, I definitely felt like a a kind of an outcast uh, in my school and stuff like that. Like I got along with a lot of people that I went to school with, but I definitely was like on my own path. I mean, when I when I was a, a sophomore in high school, I, I was already doing sound at like a punk venue. I, I was already doing sound. At a, at a club for bands like you know got to do sound for like uh pig destroyer and page 99 and all this kind of stuff when i was like 13 or 14 so i was kind of always on the path of that and, and for me you know kind of mitch what you were saying earlier the horror and the punk thing were just always connected to me i, I didn't even view them as like very different things because the only people that i knew at that time that i could even talk to about like Hey man, I just saw this movie, Dawn of the Dead. You know, the only person that was going to know that would be any of my friends that were also into punk stuff. So, it, it, I, I just thought it was all part of one thing when I was really young. So, totally. yeah, I kind of, I kind of got in through that. I guess like family, family roots a little with it. Okay. Um, do you have any like? Sorry. I... I was going to ask because looking at your Instagram and also Silver Bullet, you guys you have quite a bit of memorabilia you collect. I, I mean, I've I've seen some of your like record collections. I know you have quite a bit of like original prints of books. I think you had a couple of copies of The Thing, yeah, and Alien. Is is there anything in particular where you're like this is your number one like memorabilia or prop you have like one that really sticks out? So there's definitely a few. I I am. I am a collector and it's bad because it's like feels like such a materialistic thing, especially when like the world is going to shit with a pandemic. You're right. like, why do I have all these like stupid things around me? But, hey, uh, welcome, welcome to the terror table, Greg. You're, you're <laughs> in a good place for this. <laughs> we are all on the same page. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I, so I, my main collections, I, I have, I definitely have a, a massive uh, personal library like a, a like my whole living room is wall-to-wall books um that's been a thing i've been collecting for many years um film you know massive film collection and, and vinyl collection and yeah some of these props and stuff and i think probably my two favorite things that i have at the studio are both related you know and, and i think mitch already knows this but both of them are related to things that aren't necessarily horror but are related to 1989's Batman, a uh, Tim wow. Burton's Batman. <laughs> <laughs> which, yes. Uh, oh yeah. Which I'm gonna I'm gonna talk I'm gonna I'm gonna go into Tim Burton's Batman for one second here and say go that as long as you want. When yeah. when I was growing up, 
uh, you know, watching that movie as a kid, right when that came out, it that movie, that interpretation of Batman is completely born out of the eighties horror genre. Yes. Because it's the gothic they, as hell. The way that they treat Batman, they shoot him constantly and he falls down and then they look away and then he stands up like Michael Myers. It is like absolutely out of a slasher film and that is also the only interpretation of batman where he just straight up kills people constantly he shoots people he throws people off of buildings there's every every other version of batman is like a moral code this one he the body count in the 89 batman is insane you know he's blowing up a whole chemical factory full of janitors and workers he doesn't give a shit Yeah, it's it's so control, true. You know, so, um, so that, so to me, I, I know it's like far off for most people, but to me, you know, that was a movie that I really liked. And even this is kind of a thing that people don't know too is that Batman actually used a lot of similar sets or a lot of sets that they didn't take apart from uh, Aliens from 1986. Aliens, the the scene in Aliens where Ripley meets the Queen Alien, that is Axis Chemicals. That's where the jokers yeah that that makes so much sense now yeah they left that scene intact and they obviously they took all the goo and the alien stuff out of it but they (laughs) left the chemical feeling thing and it was like they had not destroyed that set between films and tim burton was like aliens is sick can i use this set so um you know there's like a little bit of a connection there so my so my two props that i have to to get back on task here or, or my my two memorabilia things i have a poster that is signed by pretty much the entire cast of uh batman so that's jack nicholson tim burton uh danny elfman who did the score uh michael keaton even bob kane who created batman signed it before he oh passed away oh my god away. i and would that faint was the thing that was a thing that i had gotten um when they did, when Warner Brothers did the box set of uh, the, all the movies coming out in the early 2000s on DVD, um, they did like some auctions of like stuff that had been signed and and uh, on like eBay, and nobody was, you know, very few people were using eBay in whatever 2002. So it was it was kind of it cost a lot of money for me at the time, but I was young and dumb and had a credit card so i <laughs> i went for it and uh, so yeah that poster signed by the cast it's signed by like 13 or 14 people so that's that's a big one for me and then the other one is i have a full-size jack nicholson joker in the live room that every band comes and takes pictures with and, and that is something that i helped make um i, I kind of actually put that together for an art show a number of years ago there was a tattoo gallery in Connecticut that was doing a thing where they were doing like an art show based around uh, toys. And so I'd made a life-size Jack Nicholson toy more or less as like a thing just to do. I I made it actually with like my ex-girlfriend at the time. She helped paint the face and I put together the mannequin and the outfit and everything. So that thing is still living um, in the live room. And those are probably the two coolest things out of many because I'm definitely a nerd and have... uh, don't have a lot in savings, but definitely have a lot in, in reckless purchases. Yeah. Hey, those are called investments. Yeah. They're the yeah. same thing. Yes. That's They're the same thing. Preferred it is that. Man, that's awesome. And that's, and that's actually a thing that comes up. You'd be surprised uh, by the, with the, a lot of the guests that we have on the show, it's not all that far off to, to credit uh, Tim Burton as someone who got a lot of people into horror. Not saying that that's what got you into horror, but 
there's a lot of correlations there, and that's really cool. I had no idea about the aliens, uh, how they use the same set there, but like I, I was talking to you today about how Batman 89, that was the movie that my parents would hide on me because I wouldn't stop playing it, much like how Boozy was with Jurassic Park. Um, that's that's just how I was, but that movie yeah, is just parents, so gothic and brutal. Were, my parents were also very reserved on me watching it. I remember the first time I saw it, it came on HBO when it, when it was playing, and uh, we got to the scene. I just watched like a couple minutes of it, and I got to the scene where the joker fries somebody and then he's like laughing at the guy's like corpse like this burnt corpse and he's laughing in its face and it's so over the top just dark and absurd yeah and my parents are just like oh maybe this isn't the best thing to watch right now this is not adam west anymore i guess no yeah completely different thing and tim burton yeah tim burton you know i, I grew up with a lot of that stuff like uh it's it's hard to you know, it's hard to grow up and not love Beetlejuice when you first oh, see yeah. that. In, in Beetlejuice, all the imagery in that through and through is just uh, out of horror. It's not a horror movie, but it's constantly you're bombarded with cool practical effects and like horror makeup design stuff. So, yeah. OK, um, I was just curious because you did touch on it a bit about your like horror roots. And that's kind of what we want to shift to. So kind of once you had gotten on your own and started making your own decisions about what kind of horror movies you liked and didn't like, like what kind of built you up to where you are now? I guess like your high school days and such. I think a really, a really big pivotal moment for me in my love for horror. So the first stuff I got into was almost all the science fiction horror stuff from the eighties. So aliens, Terminator, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, They Live, um, movies like that because they were just playing on TV a lot at that time, and and so I, I think the that that was like the first where like oh I like the more intense and the more bloody and and, and atmospheric and you know that these films were the more I tend to like them. But I think a really big pivotal thing for me actually was in high school. I. Uh, went over to a friend's house this is probably like mid 90s i'm i'm like 13 or 14 i went over to a friend's house i had a friend josh who lived in very unfortunate circumstances he lived in honestly what was like a kind of like a crack house like it was super dark <laughs> and sad so, yeah it, dude it was it was insane and I, I always felt bad for josh and and this kid josh he got me into a lot of like the kind of crust punk stuff that um, crust and grind core stuff that would later, you know, influence end and writing things like that. But I would always go over to his house because I felt so bad for him. His like dad was a mess. I, I'd, I'd go over and there'd be like strangers there shooting up. You'd see like all sorts of crazy shit. Holy shit. And yeah, wow. it was like, it was pretty fucking dark. So I, I kind of went over just to like, so he had somebody there, you know. And uh, there was like a punk friend of his that just kind of moved into one of the rooms. This dude, Justin, moved into one of the rooms there. He's like an older guy, but I guess he had nowhere to go. And that house was just like a free for all. You could just move in if you wanted to. And so this guy did. And I remember we, we liked him. And I remember going into his room and uh, he was watching uh, Day of the Dead. <laughs> And, you know, the original George Romero, Day of the Dead. And I had never seen anything like that. I saw the, the opening scene of that is classic, you know, like the zombie that's like missing its jaw. I think they call him oh, like yeah. Dr. Tongue or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and 
I'd never seen anything really like that. Like I'd seen the thing, but I'd only seen the thing on TV, which edits out like half of all the of it. Stuff in it. So, um, you know, I, I was just like, what the fuck is this? And it's funny because he was like, oh yeah, this is like this, uh, you know, uh, day of the dead movie or whatever. But and, and I didn't really hear, I didn't really know what Dawn of the dead was or anything like that. So I went home and I immediately tried to find that movie and that and the one that i got was dawn of the dead and i and i watched dawn of the dead and dawn of the dead that original you know 70s dawn of the dead that really really changed a lot for me I, you know i i because i liked all the science fiction horror stuff when i saw dawn of the dead and i saw the obvious um like kind of counterculture critique on consumerism they're all in the mall and everything and the absurdity of that that just appealed so much to the punk side of me that was getting into all that stuff at the same time that I just like freaked out. And, and I, I was like, okay, I got to see night of the living dead now, which I knew was one of my dad's favorites, but um, I never seen that. And that was kind of the one that, you know, this is like before the internet's really a thing. So I'm, I'm seeing Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead. I'm like, what's this? Evil Dead? That's another like dead movie. So I watched that and then Return of the Living Dead. And there was like all these like dead movies. And uh, I just kind of went through my like local, you know, VHS rental place and was like, okay, this thing says dead on it and it's in the horror <laughs> section. I'm going to do this. And then it just kind of spiraled out of control from there. I just loved it so much. But I have to say that Dawn of the Dead was probably. The one where I really, I remember watching that and thinking to myself, you know what? I fucking love horror. This is cool. I want more of this. You're lucky that it wasn't a couple years later and you'd have to throw like dead silence in there too. <laughs> yeah, I got to avoid. Yeah, I definitely. Honestly, man, the 90s, the 90s and early 2000s are kind of a rough time period for horror. Um, people were messing around with CGI they shouldn't be messing around with. Shit looks bad. Like, Alien 3 looks worse. <laughs> way worse than the two movies that come before it. And Preach, that brother. That was kind of happening to all the movies at that time period. So I definitely got into horror during a shitty time, but thankfully all the VHS stuff was out, and so, like, I was able to just get into I, I, I really <laughs> fell in love with 70s and 80s. Those are my two favorite decades of horror. So, and, and all that stuff was available on VHS, and I just went nuts renting all that stuff. Okay. And you actually kind of mentioned something that I wanted to lead into another question, because we have this argument on the podcast fairly regularly, and I know you're a big Alien fan, so 3 or Resurrection? Uh, I, w I mean, I have to say... Alien 3 is better than Alien Resurrection. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying Resurrection's better. I'm saying that it's more fun. It's more uh, entertaining. I mean, it's tough to say because they're both... I, I will say that Resurrection uh, pisses me off less than Alien 3. I feel like the, the beginning of Alien 3 where they're just like, all right, you know, let's just fucking throw out this great... the, the conclusion yep. of this great movie just out Talk of like... Sheer, everyone. Sheer negligence and, and recklessness writing-wise. But both those movies, those movies suck. Those are bad. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Boozy, like, I thought you were going to ask him step up to the streets or step up to the streets. Right, yeah. <laughs> We've been having that debate for a very long time. If it's step up to the streets or step up to the streets, what would you say, Greg? <laughs> Oh shit! Uh, I would say step. <laughs> Answer up wisely. To the streets. Step up to the streets. 
that's what I would say. Yeah. Wise man, wise man. Couldn't and yeah, that was a that was a very good answer on the aliens. The alien. That's a tough one. I mean, there's there's cool things about Alien Three, and uh, I will say that Alien Three music is fantastic. The score yeah. of that film is really yeah. good. Um, the tone is the tone is cool. That's James Horner, I, I think, right? Uh, no, it's actually somebody. It's actually James Horner did Aliens, and Jerry Goldsmith did Alien. But the person who did Alien Three is somebody else that I don't really know from having done anything else. Okay, uh, yeah, I remember way back I had a LimeWire download of that. So like that was way <laughs> long time ago. It could have yeah, been this, anyone. The score for that, and then and then Alien Resurrection. So Alien Three is done by David Fincher, who he's like classically hates that movie and and didn't even want his name on it because the studio interfered so much with it. And then Alien Four is done by the director who did Amelie, which is real right. weird. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like I, I like Amelie, but like going for the like lighthearted um french director it was a, a bizarre choice i mean granted he had done some stuff he had done uh delicatessen which is like a little bit of a darker film yeah, and yeah. some stuff like that but you know that was a, it's a weird choice. pick though that's a weird pick yeah so tonally they're kind of lost on that they don't even know what they want that movie to be a, a also boozy when you download anything on limewire you have like a 99 percent chance that it's just soldier boy so you have to, <laughs> to be careful anyway yeah, or that true. one stone oh, right? temple pilot song that's like labeled as nirvana <laughs> or bill yeah, clinton but... there's a couple things you'll get yeah um, yeah, uh, this actually ties into the conversation that we're kind of having now, but I was wondering wh how you're feeling about the recent resurgence of classic slasher properties. So like uh, in 2018, we saw Halloween get a remake from Blumhouse and they have another two sequels coming up. Uh, we're also seeing Jordan Peele producing the uh, Candyman remake. Uh, we also have, it's been announced that Fede Alvarez is remaking Texas Chainsaw Massacre while he's producing it. And we all know that we're going to get another Nightmare on Elm Street at some point. We're going to get another Friday the 13th. What's your take on all this? So I think, so as, as we talked earlier, as I mentioned earlier, I, I thought 90s was a pretty dark era of horror. And I think the early 2000s was kind of not a great era for horror either. There are great films that came out in both decades but overall we're seeing a lot of bad stuff and i think the 2010s actually stuff is turned around i think we're actually heading into a, a um i think we're heading into a, a really nice resurgence and rebirth of horror it, with movies like uh, you know the witch and it follows and all the and get out and all this stuff we're in like a really nice time period of horror the best I've seen in a long time. And I think bringing back these properties, I think this is the right time to do it. I think, you know, all the remakes like Nightmare on Elm Street and stuff they tried to do in the 2000s were, fell to the same bullshit things that was happening in horror where they're like, we're going to try to make this PG-13 and we're going to do just bad choices around. Now they're kind of like, okay, we can make it truly dark and we can, um, you know, people, there's a market for that. Uh, so I think it's a good time to do that. Horror remakes are always... You know, it, it's always going to be a mixed bag forever. You're going to have for every 10 horror remakes, you'll have one good one or something like that. But I, I do think uh, I had fun with the Halloween movie, uh, mostly just because it was awesome to hear John Carpenter do a score again. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. did you pick he, up the vinyl for that? I did. Yeah, absolutely. John Carpenter, he, he's my favorite like director, pretty much. And uh, he's a massive inspiration to me, both musically and a lot of my ideology comes from a lot of his films growing up and, and watching those. So uh, 
I'm I'm a huge fan of him, and I'm a huge huge fan of his his music. And I've seen him play live a number of times now. And um, you know, so going to see that the Halloween you know continuation or remake, most of that was just getting to hear a John Carpenter score recorded with modern technology played in a big theater system. And so I appreciated that. And I, and I do think, uh, as you mentioned, Jordan, I think Jordan Peele's doing really cool stuff um, right now. I think he is a, a completely fresh voice for horror right now. And I'm really excited to see what he does. So him, him, him taking on Candyman, producing Candyman, that is a perfect fit. Because Candyman, oh, great fit. Candyman is great mythology. It's not the greatest film, but it is fun. There are there, you know, that is a film where there's room for improvement. Like I think if somebody tried to do, uh, you know, um, like remaking Halloween is tough. Or if somebody tries to remake Alien or The Shining or something, that's tough because those are yeah. extremely well executed films. Or if you try to re- imagine trying to remake Jaws or The Exorcist, we'll we'll see that at some point. I hope but that, not. That that that's <laughs> going to be a really hard thing to stomach. Yeah. Candyman is a really cool movie but there are there is room for improvement so i wouldn't be surprised if uh what he comes across with is going to be a really exciting fun watch that's probably the one i'm looking forward to the most out of all the remakes the others are like the the original films are classics you know they're great they don't necessarily need improvement totally but like what, what did you think of the 2003 texas chainsaw massacre uh I, I do think it's one of the better remakes from that era. I, I will say that it is one of the better remakes from that era, but um, I also think uh, it misses a, a grittiness. Um, yeah. There's like a visceral grittiness in the original one that when you're watching that, I remember the first time I watched that and I enjoyed that film. My first reaction to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was when it finished, I was like, I'm lesser of a person now for enjoying yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. it, it was like so just kind of fucked up and it made you feel so uncomfortable, you know, when you got the, the grandpa with the hammer and it's just so fucking yeah. weird. So remaking it looking slick, uh, it, it was handled pretty well, but I do think it misses out on probably the coolest attribute about the film, which is that gritty low budget feel where it feels like almost like a documentary that you shouldn't be watching more than it yeah. does like a Hollywood production. Um, Hollywood production that looks like uh, every all the colors are yellow and brown for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I, I mean, I think it could, it could be a lot worse. That, that Texas Chainsaw Massacre you know, remake could be a lot worse as they yeah. went to show with all the other Texas Chainsaw Massacres that they made after that. Or the right. Nightmare on Elm Street remake. like that. That, I think, is a prime example of just how bad it can get. Yeah, that's just like a total... Uh, snooze fest and I was looking forward to that too because I Me really like the actor that they cast as uh, Freddy Krueger they, so they good cast, they cast a great actor but then they just went in the the worst makeup direction design for the character and they just kind of fumbled it right from the start you know yeah shame. totally that, that could have been cool and that and Nightmare on Elm Street is like of of all the movies that you know that is such a cool one to potentially remake the original is like a almost like a perfect horror movie but because the concept is so creative um there's so many directions you can go with like a nightmare dreamscape that we're like remaking friday the 13th you know what you're gonna get you're gonna get a basic slasher film and there's not too many ways that you can go with that whereas nightmare on elm street with the dream angle it's so ripe for interpretation they just did such a lame duck version of that 
True, but I need to say, like, so we're in the middle of a Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective right now. We're going through the whole series, and this episode is going to fall. Uh, we just finished. We just released our episode on Dream Warriors and the Dream Master. Um, but our friend Seb, who was on for the last episode, that when we were talking to him, he was saying when we were talking about Friday the Thirteenth, he was saying that you can't have a Friday the Thirteenth without teenagers. Like it wouldn't be the same if you had like a bunch of guys hunting on a business trip. But ever since he said that, I've had that stewing in my head, and now I want to see that. I want to see Jason take on guys who are hunting with like rifles. Totally. I think that'd be awesome. So you just what, want what? Jason as predator? What, sure. Dude, yeah, one thing I will one thing I will say about Friday the Thirteenth, I think that of all the horror franchises, I think that overall that is probably the one that is the most fun to watch through. Um, of like a collective, like you know, they have the ten original films. That is a pretty fun watch through all that because it it doesn't try to ever be more than it is. So it, there is an appeal totally. to that where you just have fun through it. Like I. Everybody hates on, you know, Friday the Thirteenth, Seven and Eight. You know, uh, I love Seven. I, I did that. That was my favorite character design for Jason. Yeah, oh, me too. I fell asleep to it last night. <laughs> That's I what I put that, I put on before bed. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that movie is is uh, really cool. So that that I mean, there's no part seven of the other ones that's honestly that fun that doesn't fumble you know I, I don't know as as hard so i think friday the 13th there is a charm to just like you know what you're gonna get there is the formula and they just give it the, the little differences you know it's like when you talk about them you're like oh this is the one where there's this minor difference but the same plot and and for some reason i don't know why but for friday the 13th it kind of works totally agreed okay i actually had something quick to throw at you here um just because you'd mentioned that you're a huge John Carpenter fan, especially with the new soundtrack. Have you seen, I'm just going to hold it up so you can see it. Have you gotten the deluxe version of it? Uh, yeah. Sacred Bones put out the deluxe version. And it's got like, it's like a whole nother album on there. Yeah, it's dude. I, that is exactly the version that I have. And it is really cool. It is really yeah. good. All the extra cues and stuff like that are fantastic i i thought the best thing about that film i think is the is the score i think the you know the the traditional theme is obviously one of the best and most recognizable of all time but the extra cues that he had written for that are just you know i, I think john carpenter at that time period is just on fire musically because i loved his records the lost themes records that oh, he had. so good yeah they're they're phenomenal so i think he was just like ready to go and that's his best music that he has done for film probably since the 80s so yeah he was just on firing on all cylinders on that one quick fire question for you most underrated john carpenter score tough to say but i i would say it's probably a toss-up between i i think one a toss-up between the fog which is like a, so a, good. a yeah. amazing score but is kind of a movie that people don't really talk about much in his catalog i think the score is probably the best element of that film as well and then actually the score and the main theme for Christine is really oh, good. Yeah, too. so that, good. That, that is a really good one too. So I think I think those two are the two like underrated ones in terms of his musical writing. Right. Um, you know, yeah. yeah I, I was just gonna, catalog. I was gonna ask, since you're the first person we've had on here that as I know of that's actually seen Carpenter live, how does that transfer over to a live setting? It I will say the first time that I saw John Carpenter, which was in New York City 
um, probably like seven years ago or something like that. That is the most fun I've ever had at a concert in my entire life. That is. Have the you most seen fun Smash I've Mouth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've never seen Smash. He Mouth. He toured with. Him. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Until That's a touchy I see subject. Smash Come on. Mouth. That is, yeah, I think that is the most fun I ever had at a concert because the way he does the show, I, I, I got there early. I did the whole thing. I did the meet and greet. I never do that, but I, I totally wow. did that. Um, and when I when I went up for the thing, I had him sign a couple stuff for me. I actually had an awesome conversation with John Carpenter because he saw my horror uh, tattoos. I have two I have two sleeves that are all the Universal monsters. Um, you know, uh, spread between both. There's five monsters on each arm. So he saw those when I had him sign stuff, and he was like, "Oh, you really like tattoos?" And I was like, "Yeah." And I was like, "Yeah, it's just like all the stuff I grew up with." And he saw the arms, and he was like, oh, I know these. He's like, that's Frankenstein, that's Bride of Frankenstein. He went through and listed them all, and he's like, this is all the stuff that I love. And I was like, me too. And I had like a moment with John Carpenter, which is fucking awesome. Man, wow. you, should be so, you should be so honored, because I know so many people who have met him, and it, is, it was just business where they just went in, got their picture, and it was gone. And yeah, like I, to to have a moment with John Carpenter, that's incredible. And I and I saw him do that to like everybody else in line. I, I think it was just because so many people come up and they're just like, I love this or I love that. And yeah, and, probably super fans. And 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 I granted I did that too. The, John Carpenter's <laughs> The Thing is my favorite horror movie, and I've made Same no thing. bones about telling him that. It's also my dad's favorite horror movie. Weird. It's also all of our favorite horror movies. <laughs> Great. So yeah, it's just, it's just a fucking phenomenal film. So yeah. I, I did tell him that, but I think he had fun just kind of figuring out who was on the arm and then also seeing somebody that was younger um, really hold those movies up in high regard, which is all the stuff that he grew up with that he loved and that he's referencing. True. But that, that John Carpenter show, that was an amazing experience. And he does cool things like, you know... Uh, he 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 cuts short versions of the coolest scenes of of uh, each film to play behind him on a projector screen while he's doing the music, and then he does like little things like all the um, the the brands of each like amp or guitar. He puts over stickers on them that say like "Obey," "Consume," are references to like they, they live. live. So you, nice. you don't actually see any of the marketing names of the instruments, and you know when the fog. When he did the fog theme, he blasted the room with, you know, fog stuff like the fog machine and all this. He made it like a really fun experience. And he talked between songs a little and told like little stories about making different movies. And like it was oh my God. surreal. Wow. It was a surreal experience. It is the Like I said, it is the most fun I've ever had seeing a show. And I think if he does tour, he's getting pretty old. If he tours again, it's worth it to you guys to, to honestly book a flight. Go see it. Like, yeah. I definitely being, will be being able to see a director like that, especially for somebody that like loves film so much. And for you guys that love film so much, there's nobody like John Carpenter that, that sure. wrote the music and, and wrote the movie and directed the film, you know, and or there's very few directors like that. And, and to see that guy in real life doing the songs, it's, it, it just struck such a, Thing. I mean, I, and I've seen, I, you know, I've seen Danny Elfman lead an orchestra. I've seen um, Hans Zimmer. I've, I've seen a number of my favorite film score composers uh, perform, but John Carpenter was just, he was just the coolest. He, he always oh, wow. was the coolest and he still is the coolest. That's awesome. That's incredible. 
Well, we've gotten a good idea of your like seminal horror films that have kind of, you know, inspired you, influenced you throughout your life. But I'm kind of curious, what kind of horror films are you gravitating towards now, whether they're old films you're revisiting or like new things that are coming out? I know you've mentioned Get Out and things like that. But what would you say is sort of, you know, your go to horror film right now or things that are interesting you, at least at this moment? I think a lot of the stuff that's really captured uh, my attention recently is like I was talking about this this newer wave of horror um, and, and and horror adjacent stuff. So, like last year, I really had a lot of fun watching The Lighthouse. Oh uh, yeah, that that movie yeah. was such a weird offbeat film, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily horror, but it's definitely horror adjacent. It's definitely in that realm. And that's some of the most fun that I've had in the theater recently was watching that movie or Midsummer, or like so many of these films that are coming out. I think I've just been having a blast going to the theaters and actually being able to watch a good horror movie, actually being able to watch something like Hereditary or The Witch or something like that. And, and like be like, this is actually this is a quality horror film. It's been so long, you know, since yeah. I've been able to do that, really. So I, I'm just kind of I guess. I'm appreciating that. Unfortunately, you know, um, the pandemic comes along, every suffering movie theaters may be closed forever, that kind of shit. Who knows? But, uh, you know, un- until <laughs> Let's that, hope I, not. Was having a, I was having a really good time um, going and actually just seeing stuff that was new in theater that was like really, uh, really a cool thing. Oh, that's a great feeling. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, before we get on to it, we want to get on to your top five favorite black and white horror movies, but like your lesser known ones. But before we do that, we want to touch base on how you worked at the infamous Yankee Peddler Hotel in Connecticut that served as the inspiration for Ty West's film, The Innkeepers. Uh, can you share any stories from this experience? And also, we noticed that the this hotel has a two-star rating. So I think Boozy wants to share a, a review from the hotel. <laughs> I gotta pull this up so you talk. <laughs> I, I, lo- I love it. Um, so yes, I worked at the Yankee Peddler Inn from, uh, it was probably about 2000 or 2001 till about 2003, 2004 when I started touring and, this, and I launched the studio. The studio became my full-time job. So I worked there for almost three years. And that was a fascinating place. I honestly didn't know the history of it at all when I started working there. Um, it was just conveniently located 15 minutes away from my house. Uh, Connecticut's a very small state. And Connecticut has a large like a history of hauntings and all this kind of stuff because it's one of the first colony states in the U.S. So it has like a long, illustrious history and um you know new england in general like i'm i'm an hour and a half away from salem massachusetts and you know uh an hour and a half away from sleepy hollow in new york and you know Uh-oh. all this kind of stuff so we're we're kind of right in between all that and in the yankee peddler inn that was a hotel that was built in the 1800s and they had kept it looking the same so i'm sure a bad review of this is going to comment on just not having anything modern in that like they they kind of <laughs> knew that there was some charm in in keeping it you know the same as what it was um and so they uh so that was that place looks like an 1800s hotel or it did i i think it closed down in the last year or two they, they that's kind of cool though it's kind of yeah, cool to have that aesthetic it's still open i couldn't it, it find was, out it was really cool, man. I mean, but there was there whoever the guy that had made it, he was a bizarre character because for one, 
his name was Mr. Conley and his wife, Mrs. Conley, she died in the hotel because uh, he lived in the hotel. She died in the hotel and he set out, there's a whole part of the lobby of that hotel that was a rocking chair that was blocked off with like a, a kind of like a ribbon like thing keeping you away from it. That was Mrs. Conley's chair that he would leave there after he died. And it was oh. like a, an instruction of his to leave it there. Wow. So right in the lobby, you got this big chandelier and you've got this rocking chair that's blocked off. That's <coughs> reserved for his dead wife. Like that's so bizarre. So this guy was into some weird, weird stuff. You know, there had been different deaths and murders, some of which I may have uh, seen the aftermath of during my time. Um, Are you at, serious? At the hotel. Yeah, there there was, I guess, because I've told stories about the hotel a few times, but I can tell one. I'm going to tell a different story. I was recently on another um kind of podcast and talked about the hotel a little but there's one story i'm gonna mention which is a totally separate story which is like a, a story where what i call the blood room okay there was a, a time that i had been working um where i'd come in at midnight my normal shift was like midnight to 10 a.m uh, i had checked in there was only a couple guests in the hotel and uh you know everything's normal happens and a couple guests check out and like nobody's really there uh and then at like 9 a.m or something like that i get a call from the person who's downstairs doing laundry uh they call the front desk and they're like hey i've got a sheet here that's covered in blood like uh is everything okay did something happen and i i was like um you know i was just like oh that's weird let me see. Let me let me see what's let me see what's going on. So I, I I went upstairs. I go. You know there wasn't many rooms or whatever. And I went and uh, it was room two hundred one. I remember this because this this all the rooms for this hotel were on the second and third floor. And the downstairs is all these little shops and stuff like that, which would all close during the winter. And a whole wings would close during the winter. And it like felt like The Shining because you you know I'd have to go through and look at the wings to make sure nobody was in there, but I'd be using a flashlight and there'd be no heat and I could see my breath. And it was honestly a terrifying thing to go through a hotel with no power. You know, we would close off one of the wings. But so this is like during that time period where there's like nobody really in the hotels off season. And I go to room 201 and I saw our newly hired housekeeper there and she's on her hands and knees and she's cleaning. She's like scrubbing the whole room down. And, uh, I was like, hey, um, we just got like a sheet that had a lot of blood on it. Is everything okay in this room? And this lady, super nice lady, uh, she was she was terrified. She didn't really speak English. So I had to get another one of the housekeepers come over and kind of like translate um, for, for her. And basically what happened was she went into the room. And I guess the room was covered. The wall, the bed was covered in in blood. And she, she got so scared. Um, and she just started cleaning up everything because I, I think, I think <laughs> truthfully, I, I think she was like had had immigrated to the country and 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 not in an official capacity, right? So she was really worried about police or something coming, you know what I mean? And this being like a whole thing, so she just she just started cleaning it, and and I and I get the circumstances behind that, you know, it was like a scary thing to see, but to see, but she was cleaning that whole room up, and I guess it was covered in that and, and i went i was like holy shit this is crazy so i went and i checked the the 
registry for that room and two people checked in one person checked out i remember the person checking out i didn't check them in but i had called the friend who uh worked the night before and it was a is a guy and a girl and uh i only remember seeing the guy in the morning check out um oh. and so and and this wow. person didn't provide any um th they had come in on cash no id or anything like that so we didn't really know who they were um so i went to my manager at the time and this is totally this is so bad you know uh, but i went to my manager at the time and i was like okay we have this situation right now and my manager was just like don't worry about it like <laughs> clean clean up the room pretend you didn't see that Let tomorrow's a new day <laughs> yeah and, and i was oh like I, I was like are you fucking are you kidding me like and and and, and he was just like he's like we don't want to deal with whatever comes out of that you know and, and in my in my mind i really don't know if that was like a murder or whatever it certainly sounds suspicious but granted this could have been like some wild sexual thing this could have been who fucking knows this guy yeah. could have been self-flagellating in that room you know in the, <laughs> uh, could, could, you know you know like i really don't know what the, the situation is so uh, they just went ahead and cleaned it up and by the time i'd even gone in that room the the um the housekeeper had mostly cleaned it up at that point anyway but you could still see some of the stains you know i could tell something went down in like her like bucket that she was like scraping rubbing down the floors with was like it was not clear and it was not normal brown like dirty water um so that is wild man environment you know that that's horror Th this this hotel was supposedly haunted and you know there was i was there for three years and that's a fully staffed hotel and when the time when i left that uh hotel ev almost every single person i'd ever worked with quit and most of them quit because they saw something they saw you know a lot of them saw like a child running through the um hallways a lot of them saw different fucked up things and, and many of them wouldn't talk about it a lot of them would see like lights go on and you know, different electronics turn on and stuff like that. And they just couldn't, they just could not deal with it. So our turnover, you know, in a time period where people were looking for jobs, you know, uh, was very high because people were not comfortable working there. And, um, I got to say, I have, I have all sorts of, you know, weird stories, um, associated with that place. But, you know, some of them are like, like, I don't necessarily believe in ghosts, to be honest i'm like i'm a skeptic but i've seen some weird stuff and that that blood room story is like that's just another angle of it the the kind of seedy people that go off season to these weird hotels you get some interesting characters uh and that was just one of the many experiences that i had where i was like this place is kind of fucked up and i don't know if i did the right thing and if i should have gone over my manager and called and made like a big hoopla for it but i did feel for the housekeeper and you know i just kind of was like all right well whatever happened happened i guess this is fucking crazy and uh, i was like 17 years old so i just yeah that's too uh, much for a 17 year old to have to deal with that should have been your boss should have been doing a better better job than that yeah unless so, unless unless he's in on whatever occurred or whatever oh man so. yeah man that is crazy there's so yeah there's so many crazy stories to come out of that movie so many that it spawned a film like ty west made the innkeepers about it so basically you were pat healy 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. It's such a fun. He came in and he made that movie only like a, a year or two after I had stopped working at that place. Only a couple years after I had stopped working there. But he wrote that movie and filmed on location in that hotel. They they had he'd rent out the hotel for a month and uh, filmed on location there. And um, I would have loved to have been a part or just around on that. And and I could have told him all sorts of stories myself. But uh, he had he had heard about that place because he was in Connecticut filming um, his movie before that, uh, House of the Devil, and that's yeah, a really film. cool. That's a really cool slow burn horror. That's film. Such a good movie. Yeah, it's a, it's awesome. Very underrated. I think one of the best two thousands horror films. Um, totally. Especially if you like slow, atmospheric, tension based uh, horror. Um, but he was in Connecticut filming that, and I think he had just heard about this place and, and went and checked it out and it's a, it was a really weird fucking place you know you walk in and you see that rocking chair and it looks like you walked in you know like the the front desk the newspaper right above my head at the front desk was uh framed was uh abraham lincoln being assassinated and it was the newspaper from when that came out that was framed on that wall since that happened so it's just Man. a really oh. interesting place that is unbelievable that's so cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing a story with us. Like that's, that's so crazy. interesting. Yeah, of course. It doesn't paint me in the best light with it. I, I maybe <laughs> wish I acted differently on it, but no, dude. That is none of that is your fault. You you are a seventeen year old kid. Yeah, you that, were a minor. It's all good. Yeah, that's yeah. you and your housekeeper and, may be implicated in a murder later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, if, if there's any uh, anybody's listening to this, and there, you have missing persons from Torrington, Connecticut, uh, two thousand three yeah. or some whatever. So yeah, two <laughs> so. Awesome. Well, that's wicked, man. Well, do you want to get on to talking about black and white horror movies? Sure, absolutely. You're up for that? Cool. Yeah, so, absolutely. like, we we gave you the option to uh, choose basically any type of subgenre that you'd want to discuss, and uh, you had narrowed it down to black and white horror movies. So, what's your history with black and white horror movies, and why why do they connect with you so much? So, black and white horror films, um, that is what I saw the most around the house when I was growing up. Because that is a thing that, like, my grandfather thought those were cool. And then my dad thought those were cool. And so I kind of grew up with, like, just thinking that these were cool. I, I just loved the, honestly, the originally, like, Universal Monster um, horror films. Though the imagery of those was so iconic to me. And, and I had... Um, I had really connected those images of like Frankenstein, Dracula, you know, uh, Wolfman, things like that um, with Halloween and Halloween. So I think one of the main reasons I connected with those films was because of my love for the holiday Halloween, which is interesting for me because my family, when I was young, we were, uh, kind of a poor family we were pretty poor and because of that my parents had this weird thing um where we didn't celebrate holidays like we didn't do christmas we didn't do halloween we didn't do any of that stuff when i was growing up it was really weird my parents were like very straight ahead they were like my dad was like i don't believe in god you can believe in whatever you want but we're not gonna like celebrate these like weird holidays we're gonna kind of just hang out and stuff like that and i think you know in hindsight there's a lot of factors but i think one of them was we just didn't really have enough money to like celebrate christmas in a way that they wanted to so they immediately i never believed in santa i never believed in any of that stuff they they didn't sell me on any of that but the first holiday that they let me celebrate uh was when i was in middle school i got to go out for 
Halloween with one of my friends and it was like a magical thing. I had never done anything like that. And, um, you know, I was probably like 10 years old or 11 years old, which is almost the age where you stop doing it. But I got a couple years of Halloween in, you know, before we started celebrating Christmas and I guess, you know, other things. But so, so it was like a magical time for me. Um, and it was this forbidden thing for me cause I didn't really get the chance to celebrate it. You know, I lived on like a main road that would be dangerous for a kid to walk around on. It was like a, kind of like a weird highway. And, uh, you know, so when I finally got to celebrate it, I really associated a lot of the imagery with Frankenstein and these classics. Cause you'd see those in stores and on people's windows and stuff like that. And to me, it was just something about it was like this, like mythical thing and so i really gravitated towards those old ones mostly because the imagery because of the uh just that kind of connection to the my upbringing with celebrating halloween and how much that meant to me when i finally got the chance to do it and you know so i i just really got into those old movies and really appreciated them in the atmospherics i think something about those old universal films they are there's a, a fun quality to them. They're scary for their time period, but there is a fun charm to them that I think transcends the genre. You know, those are some of the most iconic and recognizable characters. And they've stayed with me my whole life, too, because as I got into literature, those books, Frankenstein, Dracula, those are phenomenal books. You could read those now, you know, hundred over 100 years later uh, after their writing and still be absolutely captured by those books. Frankenstein was probably the first horror book that got me into uh, all my collection of collecting of literature and darker literature. So I, I'd always been kind of connected to that stuff. And that's why they're tattooed on me. And, and uh, I referenced them a lot, you know, are they the greatest horror films of all time? Like, I, you know, I don't think so. I, my favorites are in the seventies and eighties, but the imagery of those, are they possibly the most fun, purely fun horror films? I think um, to an extent they are. And, and the, you know, that kind of imagery around Halloween, I think it's just a really fun thing for a kid to experience or an adult. Absolutely. That's awesome. And like, there's, there's so much to say about black and white movies too, especially like if you think about it, a lot of those movies, like I've been going over the past week, I've been revisiting some of my favorites and watching some new ones. Um, But one really interesting thing about black and white films is most of them are rated G. Yeah. Yeah. And you're you're also you're also in a uh, time period. That's because the like the rating like they didn't have a rating system. They didn't really have a yeah. They didn't really have a rating system like they you know Jaws is rated PG PG yeah because they didn't have PG thirteen yet. They didn't even have yeah. that rating. And so I think when a lot of those films were coming out G for like an old Universal film. I don't think they really had much of a rating system and didn't really know what to go with. And it was so taboo to even think about making like an R rated thing at that time period. So yeah, a lot of those are related G and I do think, and I think it goes to show you because some of those are genuinely terrifying um, in their own way. And it kind of goes to show you that you can create such an atmospheric psychological, you know, black and white horror film, uh, or, or a thing without having to show too much, and then and that's why those ratings are like that. And the black and white, I think it adds to the, you know, it can add to being transported to another time period. It feels yeah, completely the, different. The atmosphere. So you, you don't you don't need the blood and guts in a black and white horror film to to immediately be transported to some other ghost tale or something like that. 
Totally. They really rely on like strong performances and a strong story. And then the, uh, like the overall, the portrayal of everything. And like, that's one thing, one thing I want to mention before I let you just go off and start. What what I want to do is have you list from five to one. Um, I'm not sure if you rated them in five as least like as number one as your all time favorite or anything. You don't, you didn't need to, but, uh, if you want to go about it that way. But one thing I want to mention is that we're currently working, like I said, we're working our way through a Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective, and it totally slipped my mind that um, a, tr- a famous trick that is used in a Nightmare on Elm Street was actually, it, it was used for the first time in one of my favorite black and white horror films, which is The Haunting from 1963. And that is the Freddy's face coming out of the wall. Like yep. the, the closet. And that is. Yeah, yeah using that, the sheet and pushing against it. Yeah, classic. totally. And they and they use that in the Shirley Jackson retelling of uh, the haunting in 1963. And that's just like there's uh, there's it's so there's so much innovation in this in the original classics that a lot of people haven't gone back and seen. Yeah, it's actually surprising how well a lot of the effects of those films holds up. And some of that is because the black and white is more forgiving. Uh, can be more forgiving for practical effects. You know, you don't have to get blood to look right. You know, um, totally. It's and you can work off. Yeah, and you can work off like shadows and everything. That's another thing that Absolutely. really, really works well with black and white films. Like uh, I watched Vampire last night, the German film. Oh and, yeah, yep. Yeah, that's that a the Criterion release. That's a very yeah. Cool I, I have that too, and I, I bought it when it came out, and I hadn't opened it until last night. My God, what a beautiful set! It's an incredible oh, set. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of those old, some of those early films like that. Um, and, you know, even some of the movies, you know, like Metropolis and uh, just the early work of film, they were working, they were coming out of stage production and these elaborate theater productions um, because before film really existed, that's all that people really had was going to see theater performances of things. And I think, because of that, some of those early movies have extremely elaborate stage designs and like scenery designs that they had kind of lost sight of as film developed and then are kind of back to being able to do now. So some of those early movies like Vampire or like Frankenstein, the, the laboratory in Frankenstein, that looks incredible because it's a massive stage prop that they just yeah. like built with and they were so uh they were such good craftsmen to to develop those stage settings and uh, it translates to some of those early films for sure yeah i totally agree well let's get let's do this man uh let's start if you want to go from five to one or how do you want to structure kinda, this it's, it's your I show laid it out i kind of laid it out in chronological order okay that's, that's perfect right. that's yeah that's right. perfect let's do and, it and, and the, the first thing i want to say too is um uh my favorite black and white horror there's still cool black and white horror films. I just want to mention a couple things before I even get into this. So there's still cool black and white horror films coming out now. One, which we talked about the lighthouse is a phenomenal looking black and white kind of horror movie. And in semi recent memory too, you had things like um, the mist that they did a version of that's black and white. That looks really cool. And is worth seeing if you haven't seen the home video release of the mist contains a black and white version of that film that I think is a superior version of that film. It's so much better. Yeah, yeah it, it just because the effects are bad in that movie, but they are for, more forgiving in the black and white environment. Totally. Um, and then I, I also, before I get into the list, I avoided some of the massive classics that are actually my favorites. Psycho, Night of the Living Dead. 
I assume everybody has seen those movies. And if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen Psycho or Night of the Living Dead, you just go stop listening to me talk or you know, just yeah. go watch those movies. <laughs> Psycho and Night of the Living Dead are two of the, the best horror films, both in my top 10. And they're phenomenal. But I tried to go with uh, five movies. I just wanted to recommend to people that might not know black and white horror. So, you know, if you're at home with quarantine, these aren't necessarily the best of all time, but they're not talked about as much. And I think that they deserve merit. And I think that they hold up and are worth revisiting now. So perfect. Um, with that, I'll, I'll kind of jump into the list. First one, I try to pick from different uh, decades. Uh, just because black and white horror was around for so many decades, and I think each decade, you know, has its own thing going on with horror. Um, and the first one that I have picked out was the original 1933 uh, Invisible Man. And okay. I think awesome. when people talk about universal horror movies, you always talk about Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula. Those are no-brainers. Those are f amazing films. But the Invisible Man, I think, is the best practical effects of all those original horror movies that movie looks incredible i don't know if you guys have ever seen that but there are scenes there is a scene in that movie and this is 1933 there's a scene in that movie where the main character takes off his bandages in front of a mirror that looks incredible that when you're watching it you're like how did yeah you still have no this? clue hey? how did yeah. they do this and, and honestly the effects in that movie hold up extremely well. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Jason Rook, who does like horror movie review stuff here in Connecticut, he rewatched that film last week and I talked to him a little about it. And he's like, this is a five out of five film. I can't believe how good this looks. And I'd already put it down on my list and I was like, yes, this is cool. He had never seen it before. So I think that that one holds up really well as a representative of the universal horror time period. Um, a lot of people haven't seen that original Invisible Man. And if you guys haven't seen that, I encourage you to watch it because you'll be blown away by how cool that film looks. It looks phenomenal. And it's kind of mind-blowing with the effects. Awesome. Um, the next one, I actually skip over the 40s because the 40s are a bad time period for horror. <laughs> um, and, and that's mostly because people didn't want to go see horror films during World War II. Like everything was too depressing in real life that they didn't want to see or invest in horror movies. So whereas the 30s, you know, they had the Great Depression, but in, which was a horrible time period. People were still apt to make horror stuff. When it came to the 40s, the whole film industry got messed up and, and they just lost funding for stuff like that. So skip over the 40s. Then I'm going to go into the 1950s. 1950s are categorized by really the science fiction boom uh you know people went nuts with the sci-fi movies and there's a lot of great ones to choose from you had mentioned uh invasion of the body snatchers that's a, an awesome movie the one i chose from that that time period is them uh which is a movie about radioactive ants like there's a nuclear bomb test and it makes all these giant radioactive ants that come and destroy this town but the reason I, I wanted to mention it, and I think you guys will appreciate that if you haven't seen that film, is them is actually a massive influence on both Alien and Aliens. And they actually take scenes. Uh, in the original Alien, there's a scene where uh, one of the main characters, uh, Dallas, goes with a flamethrower through the tunnels. Actually, that is from the movie Them, where they go through the ant tunnels with a flamethrower to try to find the ant eggs 
which is very similar to the aliens concept of the Ooh. queen ant in the ant eggs, which is just comes right from this movie. Um, so like when they did alien, they took reference for certain scenes. And when James, uh, when uh, James Cameron went to do aliens, he went back to the same source material and he's like, okay, what if there's a queen? What if it's like an ant colony like in them? So if you haven't seen that movie, watch that. It, it is cheesy fun. But if you're an alien or an aliens fan, there's like four or five scenes that are taken, uh, including the acid radioactive blood, which is from the ants. Yeah. And it, a lot of different things that ended up in alien, which I think is really cool. And alien and aliens are two of my all time favorite movies. So, yeah, same with uh, Boozy and myself as well. But like that, and that's cool because I actually I just added them to my list last night because it's on Tubi. Uh, we we talk about the streaming Shout service out Tubi. Tubi. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's a free streaming service that you can download, and they have tons of classic movies on there. And in a time like this, it's it's very useful. But them is on there, so it's cool. on my list for this weekend. Check, so that's awesome. Check it out. It honestly, check sounds it out. terrifying. Like I said, if you grew up with aliens, you know, alien aliens, and you're seeing the tunnels and the, the flamethrower and the acid blood and the queen and the eggs and the whole thing, you're just like, oh, this is aliens. Absolutely. You know, so, that's a very cool movie. Um, then the next one that I, I wanted to suggest is a. Uh, it's not necessarily a good movie and uh, people are pretty split on it, whether or not they like it, but it's this movie called dementia 13, which is an ax murder movie um, from 1963. And this movie, uh, this is the first movie uh, made by the director Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, you know, wow. everybody knows Coppola as the guy who did Godfather, Godfather Two, apocalypse. Now, um, you know, his version of Dracula later on, um, and he, you know, he was a fantastic director. Those are some of the greatest movies of all time. I, I love a movie of his called The Conversation that uh, not a lot of people know about. That's like a kind of thriller mystery horror film from the 70s uh, that he did in between Godfather 1 and 2. But um, that this movie, Dementia 13, it's fun because you got this guy who's going to become one of the all time greats doing an absolute shoestring budget B horror movie. Uh, I, I believe it was produced by Roger Corman, who, you know, did a lot of uh, the classic horror stuff um, from that era. And it is just a cool, weird, dark little murder um, film. So Dementia 13 is my next recommendation. And then my fourth one uh, is a 1965 movie. And I should mention before I even get into this movie, it's directed by Roman Polanski, who yeah. uh is you know has done a lot of great films like rosemary's baby in chinatown but roman plansky and i just want to mention it is a total piece of shit like totally he is, he is like a yeah. fucking pedophile rapist ass so like I, I i really struggled with even mentioning this movie because that guy fucking sucks i know but it, but it, it's you know it's a really important film it's this movie called repulsion yes from, from 1965 oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. um I just I think it's an important film in film history, and I think if you've never seen that movie, it feels very fresh and relevant, even if you're watching it now for the first time. Uh, so I, I just wanted to mention it because a lot of people don't know that movie, and I think that really, really was heavily influential in the creation of the kind of psychological thriller because the main character is more or less losing her mind over the course of the film, and um, I think it really helped set up a lot of uh, what horror would become in the 70s. And, and it's a really good film, but I had to mention that Polanski sucks. So this yeah. is in no way an endorsement of Polanski. It's more of a, uh, you know, and, and if 
you're affected by any uh you know abuse thing that you you wouldn't want to watch a film of his you know i just want to make sure you stay away from that recommendation because it's not an endorsement of him he's an awful person so but the the film is fascinating and it's it's a couple years before he met sharon tate before all of that the manson murders and everything went down um he was a a a young filmmaker doing a lot of uh, dark films and uh like rosemary's baby and stuff but repulsion's an an awesome film with with great visuals and then that guy is truly a piece of shit but i mean repulsion's a great film and actually there's a lot of interesting like um i don't know maybe not similarities but you can definitely tell that the person that made that film made rosemary's baby and like definitely those films kind of have some similar qualities i find yeah absolutely and um it's hard we we exist in a really tough time period where it's you know it's a whole other discussion for a whole other podcast of separating the art from the artist and um that's a difficult thing that i think everybody that loves film and music struggles with uh you know finding out that these people that have done this great work are uh terrible people terrible people uh irredeemable people really and you know can you still enjoy uh, something that they made? And that's the thing that I go back and forth on. That's an answer for that. And I don't have an argument for it either way, but I, I do know that this is um, in, de- in, in a capsule independent of how it was made. I do think repulsion is a very well-made uh, black and white horror film. And then awesome. uh, just for my, for my last, uh, the last one that I recommend, this is one that a lot of more people know, but I'm surprised at how many friends have never seen it. Uh, 1977, Eraserhead by David Lynch. Oh. Um, yeah. I think Eraserhead is. I think Eraserhead is one of the greatest, uh, most interesting horror um, films of all time. And I think David Lynch is one of the most compelling directors of all time. And uh, even though it's it's a classic, I think not a lot of people talk about Eraserhead. And uh, most of my friends are into horror. A lot of them haven't seen it, so I just encourage people to check that out. It is a like an acid trip of a film it is one of the weirdest films um and it also ties into my you know um we were talking earlier my love for john carpenter i love how he did the um film scores for his movie uh in a race for a racer head one of the most important things about that film is the sound design of that film is very unnerving and uh david lynch did almost all the sound design himself he did the foley art and the sound design of all the unnerving things, basically what is the score more or less David Lynch actually did that himself on that movie. And that is, um, it's the only time that he really was that hands on with it. Uh, but I think that's a fascinating thing too. And if you watch a racer head with any sort of stereo setup, uh, sonically, it is one of the most unnerving films of all time. So, uh, that would be my fifth and final black and white horror recommendation for you guys. Awesome. That is awesome, man. Thank that you so much for list. preparing. Yeah, thank you so much for preparing that list and uh, putting some actual thought into that. We really appreciate it. And we appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be here to hang out with us and talk about horror movies. This was fucking awesome. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate You know, I, I just want to say um, super quick that I'm very thankful and appreciate the kind words that you guys have towards the, you know, the music and stuff. Um, you know, that really means a lot. Like, uh, more and more so these days, you know, we kind of, do art or music or anything and it kind of goes out in a vacuum and you know you don't know if people love it or hate it or what you're doing right. so the fact that you guys like it you know it really does mean a lot so i just want to say thank you for uh even bringing me on or being interested in even talking to me or having me on 
and uh and the kind words for that you know i i sincerely appreciate it it's it's a blast talking this stuff and i loved hearing your guys thoughts on certain things too so super cool that's awesome, man. Well, thanks again. And uh, is there anything you want? Like, I'm going to do, uh, I always record a little bit of an intro before I post these episodes that I'll put at the beginning, uh, where I'll include some plugs. But is there anything you want to plug before we head out here? Um, I, I guess, you know, if if anybody's curious to check out uh, and, you know, our, our records coming out on June 5th, or if you are listening to this in the future and that has already happened, uh, <laughs> uh, find that album somewhere. Hopefully the world still exists. And, um, <laughs> so yeah, we have, a, we have an LP coming out and then, you know, I, I was lucky enough today on the day that we're doing this to have songs come out for both end and misery signals. Um, so it's been kind of a fun day and, uh, this is the perfect cap for it. So, uh, if, if anybody wants to check out that stuff, there's uh, music from End and Misery Singles coming out, which can be found on all the social medias for those bands. And, um, you know, yeah, so I guess that's that's the only real thing. So Awesome. Well, thanks again, man. And seriously, Perfect. like I'm, I can speak for all of us that if you ever want to talk horror movies, you're always welcome here. We will gladly bring you on anytime you want to just chat about anything. Uh, so anytime you want back on, you're always welcome here. So thanks again, man. Yeah, I sincerely yeah, thank appreciate you. it. Thanks so much. Mitch, Kyle, Boozy, <laughs> you guys, you guys are awesome. So, oh, you know, thanks about really, yeah, This was a blast. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate it, and I look forward to listening to all your new episodes and everything. This this podcast kicks ass. So, awesome. Oh, thanks, wow. man. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week on the Terror Table. Great. See you guys. <laughs>